Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, I'm Ani Abadisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism, give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. Hello, martini heads, and a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini, the show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo. In today's, oh my God, people, why can't you see the obvious? Your ignorance is less than glorious. The current administration is hell-bent on destroying America and turning the entire planet into one colorless, obedient, social body of self-gratifying meat robots. God help us all, crazy little world. Hmm. Here at Martini Central, we try to see things from a higher vantage point. We really do. To let the spirit, as in cosmic divine spirit, inhabit the human. We do not always succeed, but we give it our best shot. And there is nothing wrong with having a little shot every now and then, is there? As long as we don't overdo it. This show is politically incorrect so as not to erode the intellect. If you want good feely stuff, well, you'll get some of that here. But what you won't get is PCBS. Our rally cry is awaken, oh, my people. Do not follow the path of the sheeple. And may we never give our God cause to weeple. Right now, I'm not sure if God is weeping or laughing hysterically while sipping a deity-sized vodka gimlet. Is there happy hour in heaven? Gosh, I do hope so. Well, let's start the show off with a timely reminder, shall we? Wearing a mask when it is not medically necessary is grotesque and inhuman. It is an attack on society itself. You're treating the air like it's toxic, other humans like they are vessels of disease. It is disgraceful, arrogant and offensive. And thank you to a chap named Matt Walsh for tweeting that message the other day. And I'm sure he won't mind my sharing it because he did, after all, plaster it all over social media, for which I thank him. For what it's worth, today is Wednesday, May 26th, 2021. We are currently at the tail end of the Great Deception and entering the Great Cataclysm. Should we survive that, we may see the Great Awakening, followed by the Great Mopping Up. Such interesting times we live in. And remember, everyone, we chose this. We chose to be here at this pivotal time in mankind's evolution. Though some may say we are devolving and not evolving. But hey, there's no point in awakening if there's nothing to awaken from, is there? And we have plenty to awaken from and we have plenty to consider in today's divided and dysfunctional world. Now, to all the free thinkers out there, because I know you're there and I know it feels as though you are the only sane person left on the planet. But I assure you, my darlings, you are not alone and our numbers are growing. So don't be shy. Speak out against this injustice. In cases such as this, silence is acceptance. I find what I see around me unacceptable. I will not tolerate this type of abuse. I will not allow the administration of the day to dictate to me what constitutes freedom. And to all the intellectually blind out there, darlings, it's time to take the blinkers off and show some courage, some self-respect, 
some righteous soul sovereign dignity. If you enjoy this kind of abuse or you can't see that you are being abused most horribly, then may I say you are not in your right minds. Now, we normally start the show with the questions and answers and all that, but today I want to do it a little bit differently. <clears throat> Excusez-moi. I'd like to start off with our Plato Chips segment, where we quote a philosopher or scholar of note. And I want to introduce you to a scholar by the name of Edith Hamilton, who graced planet Earth from 1867 to 1963. Now, this woman was in love with ancient Greece, which you're going to um, you know, learn about in just a moment. But this woman I am featuring today because she was dedicated to individualism. She said she feared the decline of individualism more than she feared atomic bombs. So I was reminded of her work just today by an article I read in the Epoch Times. I read many papers of all points of view, although it is getting a little bit difficult to read some of the liberal stuff these days. But still, this article in the Epoch Times today was written by one Lawrence W. Reed. And for those who are interested, he is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, he's won lots of awards and stuff like that. But you will probably know him because he wrote the book just last year, Was Jesus a Socialist? To which the answer is no. But go ahead and read the book and come to your own conclusions. So he's writing about Edith Hamilton. People hate being made to think, said Edith Hamilton. It's true, though. Laziness of mind is indeed easy to find, even more so today than in her time. It shows up in vapid social media posts, flippant political rhetoric, superficial media coverage, knee-jerk but sanctimonious opinions, and the widespread absence of critical thinking skills. It's everywhere. People who don't think are vulnerable to those who do, especially to those who think constantly about how to use others for nefarious purposes. Dictators and demagogues strongly prefer compliant, sycophantic subjects over thoughtful, independent, free-spirited types. Laziness of mind rarely, if ever, made an appearance in the long life and remarkable work of Miss Hamilton. She celebrated the mind. She thought it was shameful to let your mind go to waste. In her view, mind and spirit together make up that which separates us from the rest of the animal world, that which enables a man to know the truth and that which enables him to die for the truth. In her last three decades, she put her own mind to reawakening popular interest in the great thinkers of the ancient past. And in that noble effort, this homeschooled prodigy indisputably succeeded. Now, who was this woman then? She was born in Dresden, in Germany, but to American parents. And she grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Her father and mother desired the best education for their five children, and they quickly realized they weren't going to find that in the public school system. So Edith, her three sisters and one brother were all homeschooled. Homeschooled. And they each went on to become accomplished professionals. Alice, uh, I think she was uh, into toxicology. She was the first female appointed to a faculty post at Harvard University. Sister Nora was a pioneer in art education for underprivileged children in Chicago and in New York. Margaret was an eminent educator and biochemist, and Arthur was a professor of Spanish and an assistant dean for foreign students at the University of Illinois. And Edith earned honorary doctorates from Yale, University of Rochester, and the University of Pennsylvania. So whoever said homeschoolers aren't properly educated or socialized never met the Hamiltons, or for that matter, any of the other homeschooling families that I have known. Now, Hamilton served for 26 years in various capacities, including head administrator for the Bryn Mawr School, a prep institution for girls in Baltimore, Maryland. 
But after she retired in her mid-50s, and that would have been 1922, she decided to start a new career as a writer, one that would allow her to explore a lifelong passion for ancient Greece. Her first book, The Greek Way, appeared in 1930 when she was 62. That's my age. Over the next three decades, she would earn a worldwide reputation as an authority on the ancients. The Greek Way was a huge success, as were her later books. The Roman Way, 1932, The Prophets of Israel, 1936, and one of my personal all-time favorites, Mythology, Timeless Tales of Gods and Heroes. She wrote that in 1942, <clears throat> excuse me, and by 57, by 1957, nearly 5 million copies of that mythology alone had been sold. So she loved the ancient Greeks because they loved the individual mind. Now, I have often spoken out against Greco-Roman bias in history, and I'm not sure that I agree with her that they were the first intellectualists, but she does have a point. So what she says is the Greeks were the first intellectualists. In a world where the irrational had played the chief role, they came forward as the protagonists of the mind. Elaborating on this point, she noted a remarkable feature of the ancient culture of Athens, primarily the fundamental fact about the Greek was that he had to use his mind. The ancient priests had said, oh, no, 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 thus far and no farther. We, the ancient priests, we set the limits of thought. And the Greeks said, all things are to be examined and called into question. There are no limits set on thought. So to rejoice in life, to find the world beautiful and delightful to live in, was a mark of the Greek spirit which distinguished it from all that had gone before. And because the ancient Greeks loved the mind and respected the individual, they created a civilization unlike any other at the time. And the freedom they enjoyed stood out in a world of tyrants and tyranny. A few hundred miles to the south, the great civilization of Egypt was, we are told, a very unhappy place by contrast. Miss Hamilton explains. The Greeks were the first people in the world to play, and they played on a great scale. All over Greece, there were games, all sorts of games. Athletic contests of every description, races, horse, boat, foot, torch races, contests in music, where one side actually outsung the other. I'd love to do that. Also dancing, sometimes on greased skins to display a skill of foot and balance of body. Games where men leapt in and out to flying chariots. Games so many one grows weary with the list of them. If we had no other knowledge of what the Greeks were like, if nothing were left of Greek art and literature, the fact that they were in love with play and played magnificently would be proof enough of how they lived and how they looked at life. Wretched people, toiling people, do not play. Nothing like the Greek games is conceivable in Egypt or Mesopotamia. The life of the Egyptian spread out in the mural paintings, right down to the minutest detail. If fun and sport had played any real part, they would be there on the murals in some form or another for us to see. But it seems the Egyptians did not play. At age 90, God bless her, Hamilton was honored in Greece's capital as an honorary citizen of Athens. She described it in her acceptance speech as the proudest moment of my life. Receiving thunderous applause in the shadow of the Acropolis, she spoke without notes of the city she loved as well as any in America. Athens is truly the mother of beauty and of thought and is also the mother of freedom she said. Freedom was a Greek discovery. The Greeks were the first free nation in the world. Greece rose to the very height, not because she was big, she was small, not because she was rich, she was poor, 
not even because she was wonderfully gifted, which she was. She rose because there was in the Greeks the greatest spirit that moves in humanity, the spirit that makes men free. To Hamilton, the mind was each individual human being's most unique and precious possession. She would be horrified by the notion of the Borg in the Star Trek fictional universe because it postulated a single hive mind to which humans would be subordinate and obedient. Ring any bells in today's life, people? To her, to Hamilton, the fact that we each have a mind of our own leads to one inescapable conclusion, namely that to be fully human, we must be both free and responsible. And she was a stalwart friend of the individual, the individual mind, the individual's rights and freedom. When she died, aged 95, it was 1963, the New York Times published a glowing obituary, of course. One quote in particular that the obituary author provided indicated that she was worried that the free societies of the 20th century were losing the Greek spirit of individualism. And boy, was she right. Hamilton wrote, that frightens me much more than Sputniks or atomic bombs. Greeks thought each human being different. And I take a lot of comfort in the fact that my fingerprints are different from anybody else's. So I'm certain that if she were alive today, she would detest today's groupthink mentality, the cancel culture, the political correctness just as much as she would hate the notion of the fictional Borg. Hamilton wanted the world to rediscover the very best of ancient Greece, the appreciation of the individual mind and the critical need for people to be as free as possible so they can put it to use, the mind. They have to put the use, they have to use the mind. You can't do that if you're in a cage. She was ancient Greece's most popular 20th century cheerleader when she focused on its greatness, when she was its most trenchant critic, when she zeroed in on the reasons it declined and fell. So let's close with a selection of additional insights from Hamilton, because they do resonate with vital truths we need to relearn today. We need to relearn a great many things today, people. Three quotes from Madame Hamilton. There is no worse enemy to a state than he who keeps the law in his own hands. So saluting my libertarian brothers and sisters there. Theories that go counter to the facts of human nature are foredoomed. Well, I'm looking forward to some foredooming right now. And a really good one. A man without fear cannot be a slave. That is truth. Fundamental to everything the ancient Greeks achieved was their conviction that good for humanity was possible only if men were free, body, mind and spirit, and if each man minded his own freedom, guarded it, limited it when necessary, but was a good steward of it. A good state or work of art or piece of thinking was possible only through the self-mastery of the free individual, self-government. In Greece, there was no dominating church or creed, but there was a dominating ideal to which everyone would want to pursue if he caught sight of it. Different men saw it differently. It was one thing to an artist, another to a warrior, another to a chef. But it was excellence. Excellence is the nearest equivalent we have for the word they used for it. But it meant more than that. It was the utmost perfection possible. Not perfection itself per se, the end of the journey perfection, but the very best and highest a man could attain, to which when perceived always has a compelling authority. A man must strive to attain it. Again, quoting from Hamilton, what the people wanted was a government which would provide a comfortable life for them. And with this as the foremost object, ideas of freedom and self-reliance and service to the community were obscured to the point of disappearing. 
Athens was more and more looked on as a cooperative business, possessed of great wealth in which all citizens had a right to share. Athens had reached the point of rejecting independence, and the freedom she now wanted was freedom from responsibility. There could be only one result. If men insisted on being free from the burden of a life that was self-dependent and also responsible for the common good, they would cease to be free at all. Responsibility was the price every man must pay for freedom. It was to be had on no other terms. If anything is pertinent today, that last paragraph is. What a gal she was. Go forth, my darlings, and explore her books. Now, the Roman, the Israeli one, I have a cursory glance at those, but I wore out mythology timeless tales of gods and heroes. It is an absolute treasure in my not-so-humble opinion. Go get it, read it, take inspiration from the ancient Greeks, and then ponder individualized manifestation of cosmic energy that you are. Ponder what it means to know your own mind and to thine own self be true. God rest your little soul, Madame Hamilton. All right, should we have a little sound effect? <coughs> that was exciting. Now, it's time for quack. Questions, answers and comments. But first, let me have a sip of my drinky poo, which is unusually effervescent today. So I'm glad I figured out the mute feature on this podcast. So if I'm, you know, motivated to burp, I can mute myself. Let me take another sip. Mm. That, my darlings, is absolutely mm, yummy, yummy in my tummy. All right, quack, here we go. If you would like to share the contents of your fabulous minds on the radiant beacon of hope that is the Metaphysical Martini Show, send your questions and comments to me, Arnie at ArnieAvidician.com or by snail mail to Cosmic Ani, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, USA. And hey, don't forget to tell me if you want to be identified, how you want to be identified, and if you don't want to be identified. Okay, our first question today comes from um, someone called Shiloh. I don't think that's Nancy's dog. Um, someone called Shiloh who asks, Dear Ani, are the effects of the shot we are not allowed to talk about reversible? Many allowed it out of fear because they did not know any better. Is it fair they should suffer? Surely they are not guilty of consciously inviting evil into our realm? Hmm. Guilt. Such a fascinating subject. Okay. Let's address effects of the medical experiment posing as a vaccine. We are in uncharted waters. We don't have enough experience with the toxic goo to know what works and what does not. On paper, the effects are not reversible. Any medical person I speak to who has not been paid off by pharma confirms that. And I'm sure white hat medical scientists are busting a gut to find a way to reverse, alleviate the effects, whatever they can do. But as yet, we just don't know. It's all so new. From my point of view as an energy worker, I've discussed on previous podcasts what I have seen. And I diligently monitor my injected clients to see how the programming is evolving within them. Make no mistake. It is a program, one that seeks to destroy the body's natural defenses and sever connection to the original divine blueprint. Right now, I'm on client number 12 and counting, and that simply is not enough. But hey, millions have been injected, so I guess I will eventually have enough research material. Now, as for being guilty of consciously inviting evil into this world... Well, as in, did they raise their arms to the heavens and say, come, evil one, and take over my body? No, they are not guilty of consciously performing satanic rituals. 
they are guilty of not being critical thinkers. They are guilty of having no self-respect for their sovereign bodies. One cannot be of service. One cannot contribute to the betterment of mankind if one is not in one's right mind. Remember that censorship, which is ridiculous to assume we have censorship in America, but we do, we have draconian Nazi-type censorship. That's relatively recent, though, isn't it? You see, in a world where information is available to you at the click of a mouse, there is simply no excuse for not engaging in due diligence. If the establishment told everyone that the fake vaccine was only effective if administered in public via an enema, I wonder how many people would submit to that. Responsibility means appropriate response to a situation, to a situation. I don't know what a situation is, but it's probably something amazing. Appropriate response to a situation. Appropriate reaction. If you are not the one controlling the contents and function of your mind, you are not in your right mind. Someone else's. And perhaps that someone is CNN or MSNBC or BLT or some other mouthpiece of state sanctioned propaganda. If you have given your mind over to others, you have handed over to them all responsibility for your life. You have declared you no longer wish to have any responsibility because you cannot handle accountability. That is the action of a lunatic. And that is where the guilt lies. Compassion is a given, always. I have compassion. I have compassion for sociopaths because I know what awaits them if they don't allow reconnection to their divine source. But I'll be honest. I'm in acceptance. What choice do we have? But I will not go soft. I will not go easy on speaking out against the fact that there are millions of people who could not be bothered to examine, <clears throat> analyze or otherwise investigate such a pivotal, crucial issue. Blind obedience is a mental health issue. And I'm pretty sure thousands of nuns, awakened nuns, will back me up on that. And I'm not particularly happy about the fact that these people have irrevocably altered the human gene pool, which they might have known about had they done their due diligence. So I thank you for that question, Shiloh. That's how I feel about it. And there we are. Let's take another question from the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity. Well, first of all, let's have a little drinky poo. I'm a little dry today. I say that on every show. Mm. Mm. All right. All the little bubbles, they tickle as they go down. Mm. <clears throat> this one comes from a lady in New Jersey who does not want us to mention her name, and that's totally fine. Annie, what would a world without money look like? Would it work? Oh, what a good question. Well, unnamed person from New Jersey, who knows for sure how any world will evolve? If you're asking what would happen if this world suddenly switched to trade and barter, well, then I can assure you it would collapse. <laughs> and that may not be such a bad thing. There was a time before money, BM, Money was originally created, I believe, for convenience. But as with all things, if a moral compass is missing in the people and administration of the day, a sound concept is hijacked and serves only the thugs who have murdered their way to the top of the heap. How wonderful it would be if a race matured spiritually enough for the notion of profit and loss to be a distant memory recorded in old history books. People would support each other according to skill and necessity, each providing for each other in quality of life. Architects would design, builders would build, cooks would prepare food, musicians would sing their stories, farmers would grow food, 
we would all do what we did best and engage in fair trade. Well, it sounds like paradise, doesn't it? That's because it is. But it's also a notion far removed from today's mentality. The notion that each person works for their personal evolution and for the betterment of the community. It would be a major change because we have been trained to gauge our worth by our financial portfolios. You know, I've often found that questions such as this make a very good exercise for spiritual development. Spend a few minutes each day for as many days as you want to. Imagining what your life would be if money did not exist. If everything was fair trade and barter. Would your life be different? Well, it would, of course. Of course it would. If you weren't busting your ass to make enough money to pay for the essentials of food, shelter, clothing, transportation, of course it would be different. That doesn't mean you don't work, though. So how many hours of your time or how many units of your product would pay for a month's rent? In the new fair trade and barter system without money. And don't use the dollar amount because we are trained to use a dollar amount. Don't use the dollar amount as we do today to calculate that. In this exercise, currency does not exist. When you think of a month's rent, don't think $1,500. When you think of a carton of eggs, don't think $5.99. In this world, the world that we are creating in our minds for this spiritual exercise, fair trade means you give me, according to your skill or inventory, what I need, and I will provide you, according to my skill or inventory, what you need. Money today is a bunch of numbers floating in the air. It's all a con. We, the people, are conned day in, day out by a financial system designed to indenture and eventually destroy personal wealth. I kid you not, that's where Agenda 21, Agenda 2030 is headed. We, the people, are the proverbial hamster on the wheel. Round and round until we all die from exhaustion. And we really can't let that happen. But what a wonderful spiritual exercise. What you're going to get out of it is your own affair. But what I got out of it when I did this exercise, something similar to this a couple of years ago, you can't help your programming. How often do you go back to what is something worth in dollars? And this exercise will help us with self-esteem and self-worth. And it will also bring up some uncomfortable emotions. And those are the exercises that really help with our evolution. Thank you so much, nameless person in New Jersey. Let's take another one. Why not? Come on. <clears throat> this one is from Uriah. Well, you don't hear that name too often, do you? What does that mean in Hebrew? I think it means the Lord is my light or the Lord is my fire, something like that. Well, anyway, Lord of Light says, Dear Cosmicani, what is your take on gun control? And do you think they will have the guts to come for our guns anytime soon? If they do, I am a Christian, but I am ready and may God help them. What about the ammo shortage? Can you do anything about that? Well, personally, I don't think so, mate. Okay. <laughs> Uriah. <clears throat> okay. Gun control. I may not be the second coming, but I am the Second Amendment shaman. And for all the right and for all the obvious reasons. I don't believe in any form of gun control whatsoever. Ooh. I'm in favor of developing a moral compass. Yes. But restricting access to firearms doesn't, never has, never will keep guns out of the hands of the bad guys. So why prevent the good guys from defending themselves and engaging in recreational plinking and hunting, plinking being my favorite pastime, and, and that's what primarily we use the guns for in this country. We have so many firearms in America, though people like me will say there could never be enough, but we have so many firearms in America, so many, so many, so many, 
if gun violence were a real problem, everyone would be dead by now. Come on, admit it. Think about it. The day Americans give up their guns is the day New World Order takes over. And the day America falls, that's the day the rest of the world falls. And that's the day Lucifer is enthroned on Earth as the Lord of Earth. And humans begin the process of transitioning from divine sparks in flesh form to mindless automaton meat robots. Are we going to stand for that? Are we even going to sit down for that? Bloody hell no. Also, who the heck is stupid enough to try and take guns away from a heavily armed population? Would you volunteer for that gig? I wouldn't. I work with a lot of veterans from all of the armed forces. You know, they're still in good shape and they know how to use their firearms and they know how to stand up for themselves. They wouldn't volunteer for that gig. As for the ammo shortage, um, I don't know what I can do about it for you, uh, Uriah, but I'm just going to say I presume it's due to demand. Whenever the actor playing Biden comes out, with another bumbling collection of words poorly strung together. It irritates red-blooded Americans, and we go out and buy another couple of thousands of rounds of ammo. You know, and then the factories have to make it again. I don't think there's a shortage per se. I think it's demand. We just, we go crazy, we buy thousands of rounds. Hey, you know, learning to make reloads is highly recommended. And if you're good at it, Uriah, you could make a few bucks. That's what I would do, since you're so into your guns. Learn to make reloads. Speaking of guns, my birthday is in September. And what I really want is the Ruger LCP model number 5431, 38 special revolver with a three-inch barrel and the one with the adjustable black blade. So it's about $600. So if you all start saving now, you could get it to me in time for September 1st. Thank you very much. You know, here's a thought. I wonder if Ruger would be interested in sponsoring me. The sure shot shaman. Critical thinking, accurate plinking. Together we can stop America sinking. You know what? I'm going to write to them. I love Ruger handguns. They're my favorites. I think they should sponsor me. I'll let you know how that goes. Well, thank you, Uriah, for your question. I just have to ask. As a Christian, when you sit down in church, do you quietly think to yourself, I'm sitting on the pew, 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 pew. <laughs> do we have time for one more question? Yes, we do. Maybe we don't. I don't know. Let's go for it. That was a really bad joke. I really apologize for that. But it made me happy. OK, let's go for another question. And this one is from Omit Personal Details, who asks, Arnie? Can you explain stigmata? Wow, from guns to stigmata. Um, well, explaining stigmata is very easy. <clears throat> People who have stigmata exhibit wounds that duplicate or represent those that Jesus is said to have endured during his supposed crucifixion. The wounds typically appear on the stigmatic's hands and feet and also sometimes on the side and sometimes on the hairline and occasionally scourge marks. These are all the places where Jesus was said to be tortured and, uh, and crucified. So curiously, there are no cases of stigmata that I could find or anybody else could find for the first 1,200 years after Jesus died. The first person said to suffer from stigmata was St. Francis of Assisi. Oh, I love St. Francis. Um, 1182 to 1226. And... I think there have been about three dozen or so throughout history, most of them women, so it's not that common. You've probably heard of the most famous one of all of those, and that was a chap called Padre Pio, uh, Francesco Forgione. He was uh, on Earth 1887 to 1968, a beloved Italian saint, but then again, the Italians do love their saints. It is said that around 1910, he began noticing red wounds appearing on his hands. And this phenomenon just kept, I guess, growing and growing until by 1918, when he was praying in front of a crucifix in his monastery's chapel, he went into a full-blown stigmata episode. 
Then again, people said that Padre Pio was able to fly and bilocate. Um, and they also said that when he was in his stigmata presentation, they could smell beautiful smells like angelic smells, violets, lilies, roses, incense. And one person said even fresh tobacco. And of course, we know that that sort of smell is angelic and the smell of garbage we associate with demonic things. So was he a real thing? I mean, yes, he was a real thing. He existed. Was the stomata real? We don't know what we can say. If we take the social context in which this stigmata of Padre Pio's emerged in the first years of the 20th century, he was a seminarian. And the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ part, which is kind of creepy to me, um, was at its height of importance in Catholic practice, as I am told. So communion was a big thing. And body language, asceticism, it was interpreted in more and more physical terms. In other words, the spirit inhabiting the human, moving the human, the ecstasy, levitation. Um, you know, they thought that that was how you could prove that was the mystical language with which the divine moved through your body. So, you know, I'm not sure that many people were convinced that his stigmata was real. Among the skeptics were a couple of popes as well. One of them being the founder. Um, no, one of the popes wasn't. But there was the founder of Milan's Catholic University of the Sacred Heart, some chap called Agostino Gamelli. He examined Padre Pio and, in his opinion, Pio was a self-mutilating psychopath. So here's the thing. We want to know, is it real? Is it a hoax? Is it something in between? It's very difficult to verify scientifically. Because you would need 24-7 surveillance, wouldn't you? To establish the validity of the phenomena. Otherwise, it's always going to be suspect. And of course, we can't ever rule out the possibility that it is genuine stigmata. Interesting note, though. Um, in all the cases of stigmata, the wounds in the hands appear at the palms. And that's accurate when you look at religious paintings. But that's not how people were crucified. If you're crucified, and the Romans were brilliant a crucifixion. In fact, they had crucifixion squads. If you're crucified, the wounds will appear at the wrists. So that's a little red flag, isn't it? If stigmata is real, we don't have a scientific or medical explanation for it because you don't just spontaneously bleed. You have to be shot or stabbed or poked or some sort of trauma. And how will you tell the difference between a minor surface wound that was self-inflicted and an actual stigmata if you didn't see where it happened? I mean, I suppose they could x-ray you and see if you were pierced all the way down to the to the bone or whatever. But it's very, very difficult to prove this one way or the other. We don't have any evidence. Any eyewitnesses that have seen stigmata have not seen it from the beginning. Uh, what, I'm, what am I trying to say inarticulately? I'm trying to, they say, look, my hands are bleeding. Well, no one saw the hands not bleeding and then spontaneously bleeding. We don't have any of those reports. So who knows? I have no idea. That's all we know about it. Um, I have actually in the past discussed this with a few Catholic priests. They don't think it's real, not the ones I spoke with. But they're never going to get up and say it's not real. Any more than people are, you know, going to say that some artifact they have isn't the spear of God or whatever in some Armenian church somewhere or another. Because, you see, if it helps to sell the gospel, then that's what they're going to do. And with that, says Ani, checking her hands and feet for piercing wounds, we end quack for today. Darlings, keep those questions coming. Share your views with like-minded, crazy individuals, because we genuinely want to hear from you. And that's the main reason for starting the show, was to hear from we, the people. Okay, another sound effect. <laughs> I need to get some more sound effects. 
All right, I think it's time for weird and wacky history. But first, it's time for a little sippy poo of my drinky poo. Oh my gosh, people, I wish you could sip this. Mm. It's so damn good. Mm. Bubbly, but good. All right, burp warning ahead. The oldest hotel in the world is the Nisiyama Onsen Keunkan, and it's 1,300 years old. It's still operating as a hotel. It was founded in 705 AD by Fujiwara Mahito. It's in the Guinness Book of Records. It's in Japan's Yamanashi Prefecture. But here's what's interesting about it. It's been operated by the same family for the last 1300 years. Not the same people, obviously, they're not vampires, but it's 52 generations of the same family, all descended from Fujiwara Mahito. Isn't that fascinating? So I looked it up um, on booking.com, which is, you know, where I book my hotels when I go on talks and stuff all over the Pacific Northwest. And it looks like a lovely hotel with hot spring water pumped into every room. And the menu looks delightful and they have wonderful sake. If I ever go to Japan, that's where I'm going to stay. Another little tidbit. This one just cracked me up. Um, it may not crack you up, but it cracked me up. 1865. Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck challenged scientists and politicians Rudolf Virko to a duel. And primarily because Bismarck was sick and tired of Virko demanding his government do something about the unsanitary conditions in sausage factories. <laughs> Many people at that time were disgusted by the conditions of sausage factories. In fact, Upton Sinclair wrote about the conditions in Chicago. Um, anyway, Virko understood that Prussians were getting sick from bad meat. And he had identified a deadly parasite, Trichinella, which caused a potentially fatal disease, trichinosis. And that is a tricky disease, um, no pun intended, because it's a type of roundworm that gets inside you and it replicates and it's horrid. Anyway, Chancellor, back to him, Otto von Bismarck, he couldn't give a toss about any of that. He wanted to spend his money on the military. He couldn't give a toss about public health. And he got really upset by Virchow going on and on and on about him. So Otto von Bismarck challenged the scientists to a duel. However, this means that the challenged is allowed to choose what weapons the two would duel with. Guess what he came up with? He proposed that they each consume a pork sausage with the knowledge that one of them was infected with trichinella. The person who ate the clean sausage would be fine, but the person who ate the infected sausage would become very ill and possibly even die a slow and miserable death. That is pure genius, because you know what? At that point, Bismarck retracted his challenge. <laughs> That's a bit of fun. So I came across this little thing about... Um, the legend of an Armenian king. And his name, well, we call him Dertad. Uh, they call him Tiridates the Great. Uh, about how he was converted by St. Gregory the Illuminator, the patron saint of Armenians, uh, to Christianity. So there's this story that Gregory went to Dertad and said, hey man, be a Christian. And Dertad said no and threw him into a pit for 13 years which was not very nice, to be honest. It's not very hospitable. And he would have died if it wasn't for a very kind woman who brought him food and water. So meanwhile, we're beginning to doubt Dertad's mental health because he fell in love with a pre-Christian nun, some sort of holy woman called Haripsime. And she being holy, I guess, said no to him. And he was so upset by that that he killed her and also killed the entire order of those pre-Christian nuns. And that made him mad. And he had a reputation for being a werewolf. They said he had lycanthropy and he turned into a werewolf. 
Dotad's sister had a vision that Gregory, the Christian, in the pit for 13 years, being kept alive by this woman who brought him food and water, was the only person who could cure Dotad of being a werewolf. And so, myth says, Gregory came up and cured the king of being a werewolf, which I don't think he was a werewolf. You know, I think he probably got very upset with himself for committing mass murder, drank a lot and became an absolute beast of sorts, but not a big hairy werewolf. And then the Armenians magically converted to Christianity in 1301 AD, making them the first nation to adopt Christianity as an official religion. Although I think the Edesians did that, but they don't exist, so maybe they don't count. I don't know. Anyway, in reality, I don't think any of that happened um, quite the way it went down. I think uh, Armenia was a province of Rome, wasn't it? And Christianity was spreading from the center of the empire, going rapidly into the southern provinces. And um, you know what happens when a king says, OK, we're going to change religion. That means he's in charge of all the wealth of all the religious temples in the land. So he would have said, OK, you lot, we're Christians now. And all of these idols that you've got, all the gold and silver and the jewels and everything, you've got to give them to my soldiers. We're going to melt them down and we're going to, you know, they're mine now. New religion. That's probably what happened. Another quick little tidbit. This is not quite as gruesome as it sounds, but it is pretty gruesome. It's about the chainsaw. It was developed in the late 18th century. And when it was developed, it wasn't what we associate with today's chainsaw. It wasn't a giant tree cutting device that, uh, you know, uh, people in horror movies use or our gardener Jesus here um, uses. Instead, it was a crank-operated device similar in size to a large kitchen knife. And it was invented, deep breath, to assist with childbirth. You see, before modern medicine, cesarean sections were very risky and they caused infections and baby and mummy both died quite a lot. If an infant becomes stuck, became stuck during, I sounded very London there, didn't I? If an infant became stuck during labor, surgeons would widen the birth canal by performing a symphiosotomy. A symphiosotomy? What a strange word. I've never come across that before. Anyway, it means cutting into the pelvis by severing cartilage, tissue and bone without anesthesia, which sounds horrific. I mean, if I was alive in that time, I would do everything I can not to get pregnant. But apparently, compared to using a knife, which was common, or even a hammer and chisel, which was used on the woman, the hand chainsaw was a safer and more efficient tool. Well, all I can say is thank you, God, um, that I'm alive in this world today and I'm not going to get pregnant anytime soon. And one quick little tidbit, because uh, I'd love to fit in Tarot a go-go if we can. Dusty Springfield, the 1960s singer from the UK. Oh, my gosh, did I love that woman. She was brilliant. The only man who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only man who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. Oh, you should just go get her stuff. It's brilliant. Anyway, this is what she left in her will for her cat. She asked that her feline be fed imported baby food, live in an indoor treehouse, be serenaded at night with Dusty's old records, have his bed lined with Dusty's pillowcase and nightgown, and get married to a friend's female cat. Well, isn't that just absolutely fabulous? <laughs> what a lucky little cat. And now we're going to fit in Tarot a go go. <laughs> a little what the heck with your favorite tarot deck. And I do believe we did the Four of Swords last time. So that was autumn, and now we're going to do the winter season. That's a pentacle. So it's the Four of Pentacles. So let's pick up this card and take a look. What do we see? We see. Well, in the Robin Wood deck that I'm using, a very grumpy old man with four pentacles, one on his head, one in his hands and one under each 
foot. And he looks very much like he's saying, Oi, mate, this is my money. Hands off. You're not getting on it. You're not getting any of it. It looks rather miserly. But I'm not sure that that's all this card means. Certainly it's about money. Certainly it's about possession of money, money management, financial security, ownership of money. Um, I think it's about holding on to money, holding on to your possessions, holding on to what you have. So if I were to get this card, I'd say I'm not going to make a very quick decision on something unless it feels really right. The look on his face also gives me the idea that he's hesitant to try anything new. He's got his deeply ingrained belief system. He may not be taking the advice of his financial advisor. And he certainly doesn't look like he wants to make any risky decisions anytime soon. He'll probably go with Edward Jones and play it safe. That's probably what he's going to do. Yeah, that's what I feel. Um, I also feel perhaps this card is telling me that on occasion we can be far too conservative. Yes, too rigid. Yes, I, I feel that. That's what's coming over. Um, you get this card also when people are afraid to delegate. Then they're control freaks. They don't want to take advice. Everything has to be done by them because only they can trust themselves. But it's a lot more positive than the look on this guy's face. You know? Um, I would say definitely it represents bankers, people with money, the action of money, banks, financial institutions, all of that. But I would also, if I picked this card, I'd take a look inside and go, am I running after money? Is is that what's taking over my entire life? I mean, are the material interests blocking my emotional growth, my spiritual growth? And if I turn this upside down, what do I feel? Oh, well, now the miserliness comes out. Now it's miserly, greedy. I'll do anything I can to make sure I don't end up sleeping under a bridge. Um, that sort of thing leads to very poor fiscal management, really. Um, I got this upside down, depending on what the question was, of course. I'd be suspicious. I'd be a little bit defensive. I'd want to take a look at all the people that I am working with. I might not get paid quite what I was promised. It's that kind of card. It's a money problem card when it's upside down. I get wastefulness. I get um, unnecessary spending. Hmm. I would say if you get this card upside down, balance your budget, get some advice if you need to. Your financial security is at risk and possibly because you're holding on too tight when you should be putting it out there. Remember, money of its own self does nothing. You have to spend it. You have to do something with it to activate it. It is an actual currency. Bzz, you send, you know, it's electric. You spend it. Yeah, misers, tightwads, we would say back home. Um don't worry too much about money, people. It's the last stage of manifestation. If your prosperity consciousness encompasses all the good things in life, it, the money really will follow. Darlings, I can't believe it. I think that's it for today. I'm going to finish my drink. Mm. Mm. Oh, my God, that is so good. Now I've finished my drink, and that means the end of the show. I really enjoy doing this, and I do hope you enjoy listening in as much as I enjoy recording it, because I have a blast. I really do. Today's real-life, very effervescent cocktail is a classic black velvet. It was created in 1861 to commemorate the death of Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, and she adored him. So she probably drank quite a few of these after he cocked it. Here's how you make it. You get a highball glass. You half fill it with chilled Guinness. Other people use different stouts. There is no point in using a different stout. Guinness is God. You wait for the Guinness to settle and then you top it off with chilled good champagne. Don't buy cheap stuff. 
Today we're using Krug Grand Cruvée Brut because someone gave it to us. Because sure as heck, I'm not spending $200 on a bottle of champagne. But this is delicious. Highball glass, half Guinness. Guinness settles. Top it off with the champagne and drink it. Because that's what you do with cocktails, people. You drink them. Now remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is all you need. I'm Arnie Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, cheers and let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Abedisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.